Acts 23. Um, We left two weeks ago with Acts 23 where Paul has been arrested. He is in Jerusalem. Everything that was prophesied that would happen to him is happening. You're going to be arrested. And all of his friends warned him not to go. This is what's going to happen. Paul said, I don't care if I'm arrested. I don't care if I die. I'm going to Jerusalem. I got a bag of money to take to the people who need it. He'd been collecting it from the Gentile churches. He was going to take that there. And so he gets there. As you know, he, um, uh, when he gets there, there's a dispute. Paul's name has been going around all around Israel. And uh, there's all kinds of rumors about him. Some are saying, excuse me a minute. Some are saying that he uh, uh, has told Jews to disregard the law, which he never does. The law is good. Paul never says that you no longer have to obey the law. Salvation is by God's grace for sure. But the same, do y'all hear the reverberations as, okay, Ed's back there doing something. He'll do something. He'll do something. He'll get it. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's going to work, but he's going to do something. Um, But anyway, they're uh, they're accusing him of of saying you don't have to obey the law. Well, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church, says, uh, Paul, go in and, and, and pay the vows of these four gentlemen in front of everybody. In other words, you're going to be keeping the Jewish law, and, and everyone's going to see you, and they're going to say, oh, all those rumors were, were not true. Paul's a great guy. Well, Paul goes and does this, and someone comes up with a rumor. They decide that Paul has brought uh, a Gentile into the court of the Jews, and that's a no-no. You never, a Gentile can only go so far in and around the temple, the court of the Gentiles, which was a large court. But they accused Paul of doing this. Paul would never do that. And he didn't do that. There's no, nothing that says he did. And he stands firm saying he didn't. But that doesn't keep someone from accusing him. And so they do. And so he goes to trial. A nice, good trial. A lawyer here, a lawyer there. No, no. They just accuse him. They start beating him. And they're kicking him to death. And they're going to beat him up to the point where he dies. And someone rescues him. So you've got uh, the Romans step in, of all people, to step in, and they save Paul. And they ask, hey, what would you do? Well, he gives a speech to the, to the Jews in Acts chapter 22. They're not happy with it. The Romans have to save Paul again, so they put him in custody. And now in chapter 23, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees being a conservative group of which Paul himself was once a part of, and the Sadducees, the council, that is the Sanhedrin, 70 men uh, presided over by the high priest, 71 men total, and they start trying Paul. Well, Paul makes a, a deal. He says, look, I'm here because of the resurrection. The only reason I'm here is because I believe in the resurrection. My family and I, we sat down the other night, we watched, uh, uh, again, if you haven't seen it, uh, The Case for Faith. It's, a, it's this, the testimony of uh, Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel and how he came to know Christ. It's a wonderful movie. It's a great, and the book's excellent. It just shows you how it came to pass. And, you know, when, when you've, got, you've got evidence where Lee's going out, he was a staunch agnostic, atheist actually, and he goes out and he finds evidence, evidence, and evidence, and it comes to fruition. The man says, I can't do anything but, but uh, uh, pronounce faith in Christ. And so there's this, he kind of puts a trial together. He's trying, he tries Jesus. And uh, in so doing, he finds that Jesus is actually the Messiah. And Lee Strobel, as you know him today, if you know anything about him, he's one of the best writers. I mean, for me, he's the best writer I've ever read. And I, I enjoy his books because he's such a good writer. Uh, and the content of his stuff is good. I don't even know why I'll get off on that. But I do want to tell you that it was a, uh, you do a, a good trial. Things work out. Things work out. And truth is known. Well, that's not what's going on here. Um, Paul is, uh, oh, that was the thing I was going to say about it, was that in the movie, uh, before Lee becomes a Christian, one of the guys 
guys he works with at the Chicago Tribune, says, look, if you want to investigate Christianity, if you want to disprove it, he said, go straight for the jugular. Disprove the resurrection. Because if you can disprove the resurrection of Christ, you, uh, it's all a house of cards. falls over. Which is what many have done. That's why they're Christians now. And so Paul says, look, I'm on trial for the crux of the matter. You know what the crux of the matter means? It's a Latin phrase. Crux. You know what crux means? Cross. Cross. That old saying we have, the crux of the matter. The cross of the matter. Everything meets at the cross, doesn't it? The cross. But it's not just the cross. It's the resurrection. Jesus died, was buried, resurrected. And Paul is saying, I'm on trial because I believe in resurrection. The Pharisees did. Sadducees didn't. They got in a big argument. Another big scuffle. Paul's life is in danger. The Romans rescue him. So while he's sitting in jail, uh, he... Uh, has every intention. He's told all his friends, I want to go to Rome. I want to visit Rome. And here's what God tells him uh, in chapter 23, verse 11. On the night immediately following, this is following all the great uh, debates and all the threats against Paul's life, the Lord stood at his side, that is at Paul's side, and said, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Now that's a wonderful uh, comforting word from God. And he is saying, Paul, your plans to go to Rome are going to come to fruition. But they're not going to come to fruition like Paul thought. Paul thought he's going to go back, take some money to Jerusalem, pass it around, get in another argument, maybe get beaten, get let loose, and head off to Rome and share the gospel. He's going to Rome, but not like he thought. He'll go in chains. In fact, this is the last time Paul has spent his last day for a good while going about and doing whatever he wants to do, hasn't he? going about spreading the gospel, going to this town, going to that town, spreading the gospel. It's not going to happen, at least for a while. And when it does happen again, it's going to be very brief. Now, I can tell you this, going through chapter 23, 11 to, 20, to uh, 35, to the end of the chapter, I always know when something's amiss in the text, or with me, me, I should say, not in the text. There's nothing amiss with the text. Uh, that was a bad one. <laughs> nothing amiss here. But when I read through a text and I'm getting ready to teach and I become frustrated and more frustrated, I always know why. And that's because this text has nothing in the Bible. There's nothing in this text that teaches us in this narrative there are no doctrinal truths taught, nor are there any practical exhortations for Christians to observe. And I realize, I always realize when, that's, when there's a, a descriptive text in the Bible, that means, and I'm frustrated, it means that doesn't exist. Because it's easy to say, here's what it says, here's what it means, here's what we go do with it, here's how we apply it, none of that here. <laughs> Our text tonight merely recounts an event in Paul's life so what do we do with such a passage? So when I figure that out and I realize why I'm frustrated trying to figure out how I'm going to teach it, I go back to the basics of Bible study. Ask, what does the text say about man? What does the text say about God? And what does the text say about God's relationship to man? And so we'll look at that tonight. If you ever get frustrated, you think, I don't really know what to do with this. What am I supposed to do with this? Uh, my preaching professor at DTS would give us certain passages, and when we did narrative, sometimes in a narrative passage, again, a narrative is a story. It's just telling you what happened. You may or may not have anything in there to teach, at least obvious things. You get to the epistles, Paul is sharing doctrines about Christ and tells us what to do. It's very simple to teach through the epistles. So he would give us these narratives, and what do we do with this? How do we come up with this? Go home, gentlemen, do your exegesis, work through it. What does it say about God, man, God's relationship to man? So that's what you do. In the end, we will struggle to find another passage of Scripture that more clearly illustrates the providence of God. So what is God's providence? You've got to like my pictures, don't you? The providence of God. Somebody, shout out. What, what is, when we talk about the providence of God, what are we talking about? His will, sovereignty. In our lives, 
what in our lives? God's work? Yes, more, more detailed in our lives versus sovereignty is everything. Okay, sovereignty, she's saying, is everything. Providence is more detailed in, in your mind, okay? God's plan, okay? Providence of God. Not the miracles. It's not about miracles. Providence is not about miracles. Are things unfolding in the world randomly? Well, most people think they are. And it really, most people think they are. Even many people who call themselves Christians think they are. If they are, then to what end? And if they're not unfolding randomly, who or what is guiding the events of life? Well, we say, well, that's God. Yeah, it's what you always say in Sunday school. God, that's the answer. Who or what is doing? God is, or Jesus, or both. Okay, and, that, and that's a good answer. It's true, but brings up some problems. Am I the master of my own fate? And if I'm not, why am I working hard to get to do something that I want to do, that I want to accomplish? Is God guiding? Why should I do anything? Hmm. I'm working hard, yet God's in charge. What? Where, where, is the, where do those two meet? What about this one? If God is in control, why is there so much suffering? He's sovereign. He's over everything. He's orchestrating the events of life. We sit here tonight in partially air-conditioned room, sitting in comfortable chairs, most of you have eaten, and if you haven't eaten, you're going to go eat afterwards. And if you ate before and you want to eat afterwards, you're going to eat afterwards. <laughs> you have no problems with food. You got gas in your car, and if you don't, you live right next door. You can walk across to the nice bridge we built, nice gate, <laughs> and to that wonderful, huge mansion right next door. And it is beautiful. We have no problems here. Um, I mean, that's not to say there aren't issues going on in our lives that we don't struggle with, but what about the child whose mother dropped him on the coffee table? What about the child born without legs, without eyes, Down syndrome? What about someone, a woman who was kidnapped and raped? What about some young person who flew to, to, to Europe and was, uh, was kidnapped and has now been sold in human trafficking? God's in control and these things happen? The providence of God? These are good questions to ask. And they're questions we as Christians have to have at least some semblance of an answer. First of all, we do not know the reason all these things happen. But we do know, secondly, that God is in control. So if they're happening, God is at least allowing such things to happen. Otherwise, if we say, well, that's not God. If it's not God, then what's God doing when those events are happening? Because other times, you drop your baby. And all of a sudden, the baby suddenly turns and the head doesn't hit the coffee table. It falls on a pillow. And you say, oh, praise God. You call your friends. God just, God did do that. All glory to God. But what about the baby that it didn't happen for? Where was God then? Still there, isn't he? Explain that. Providence of God. So we believe it. But explaining it in these outlandish events, which are everywhere, not necessarily with us tonight, but how and why. The doctrine of God's providence. Here, here's a definition I give you. It tells us that the world and our lives are not ruled by chance or fate, but by God. They're ruled by God. Who lays bare his purpose of providence in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. Everything he's doing is moving towards Jesus, pointing towards Jesus, will end with Jesus, began with Jesus. Everything is about Jesus and will end with Jesus. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we wonder, why would God ordain that? 
Why didn't God just ordain, if it's blood that saves us, why didn't God just have that Jesus prick his finger or cut his hand and pour out some blood? Here, you're saved by this. Why did he have to die? Why did he have to die so horribly? Why couldn't he have just died with one quick swell, a flick of a, a piece of wood up against his head? Why did he have to die like this? Is God some sadist? If you look at the six hours Jesus was on the cross and the, and the time leading up to it, did God need all that to happen? Well, we get in these positions where we start to judge God. God, we don't like this. I don't know why you had to do this. Be very careful. There are a whole lot of people, a whole world of people who are waiting to sit God down, going to take their hand and put it on his shoulder, sit down and let me share with you what I don't like about what you did on this earth. A particular rock star I saw one time was telling him, the guy was asking him, was Dan Rather asking him, do you believe in God? And he said, I've got some problems with God. A rock star. Got some problems with God. You got more problems than that, bud. (laughs) Sit down, sit down. And he brought up all the children and he brought up the Holocaust, as all Jews do. Uh, There's a movie, I think I've mentioned it before, it's called God on Trial. And it's um, Holocaust, um, people of the Holocaust in um, in their death camps, And they're sitting around putting God on trial. Why would this happen? Be careful. We don't know certain things. God is in control. Did the Holocaust happen by God's providence? Yes. Yes. Nothing happens outside of it. There are drops of rain falling right now. What's left of the storm that blew through. Every little drop is falling exactly where God would have it. I would have it, if I were God, that no rain falls on the concrete. That all rain falls on the grass and stores itself up for July when it doesn't rain so that my yard isn't dead. <laughs> not God. God, why do you have to waste it on the concrete? Or on my neighbor's yard who does not care about his grass. <laughs> Providence of God. Main idea. God has ordained that Paul spread the gospel in Rome. Which was what Paul wanted to do in the first place. But instead of him going, to, going freely and preaching there, as he had done everywhere else, Jewish animosity and human intrigue will bring him to Rome under arrest. This, however, does not derail Paul's purpose. Derail Paul's purpose. Instead, God uses it to further his purpose. That's one of the main ideas we'll see here tonight. Notably, God's concern is not that justice be done and Paul be acquitted of all charges. We'd love to see that. What happened to Paul wasn't anyone's fault. Not Paul's and not James who suggested Paul go to the temple in the first place. Paul might be going, you know, if James just hadn't told me to go in the temple, that was a bad idea in hindsight. Never should have gone there to pay those guys vows. That James. I used to like him, but I don't. You ever done that with somebody? If I just hadn't answered the phone, if I just hadn't gone over to their house, it's their fault. If God's in charge, it's nobody's fault, is it? All right. Let's, let's start reading a bit. Verse 12. So as God has sat with Paul and told him, you're going to be my witness in Jerome. Don't worry. Paul needed that. We needed that hope. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath. These are the same people that have been beating him, trying to get at him since chapter 21. They formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. These are Jews. Paul's a Jew. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. So what does it say about the light of the world prior to Christ? Remember, the Israelites are God's light to the world. We know that God ultimately is through his son, Jesus. But God made the Jews, set them apart. You shine my light, tell the world I am. What does it say that these people 
are plotting a murder. Over 40 of them. It's not just two or three bad eggs. Let's murder this guy, Paul. And what's Paul done? Really, what has Paul done up to this point? What's his crime? (laughs) Really, more specifically, is he wants to tell the Gentiles about faith. That's what they got so uptight about in chapter 22, wasn't it? When he said, they listened to him up to a certain point, but when he said, God sent me away to the Gentiles, they roared with disapproval. Let's kill him. Rid the earth of this man. They're throwing dust in the air. Well, you don't want throwing dust in the air. That's bad stuff. <laughs> Pardon my sarcasm. So 40 of more than 40 of them, let's kill him. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who formed this plot. Verse 14, they came to the chief priests and the elders, and the elders and the chief priests said, that's against God's law. We can't do that. Really? Your version doesn't say that. Wouldn't you expect them to say that, though? The elders and the, and the, the chief priests? No, this is how bad a world they live in, where the elders and chief priests of the Jews are now part of a conspiracy to kill an innocent man. This shouldn't surprise us, because about 15 years prior, they did it to an even more innocent man. And they say, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath. Probably something like, may God... Um, take my life, may God do to me uh, all the more, uh, hurt me and do so all the more if by the morning Paul is not dead. That, that, that would have been their prayer. They bound their oath, uh, the Greek text says they have anathematized themselves with an anathema. Uh, now the funny thing, this, if you don't think the Bible's funny, is that those guys, if they lived a little while longer, they died pretty hungry. <laughs> Because they didn't get him. I mean, <laughs> I would never take that oath, by the way. <laughs> Solemn oath to, take, to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. So the conspiracy is with over 40 men. They're with the, the elders and chief priests who were part of that assembly in the early part of chapter 23. Verse 15, now therefore you and the council notify the commander. That's the tribune. That's Claudius Lysias to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. Now, let me say this. I think I have it on a slide later on. Sometimes I forget the slides I've actually made. But I think that uh, it's, it's a principle that when you have leaders this wicked, God, does God ordain leaders? God ordains wicked leaders over wicked people. Now, I know we're all sinful. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about uh, political figures and people that rule over us usually reflect the wickedness of the people they rule over. And Paul is in this age, he's written Romans already, and he said, look, obey your governing authorities because they have been ordained by God in Romans 13. He says in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, malign no one. We malign people all the time, especially our leaders, if we don't like them. So here's Paul in the midst of it. And yet, in the midst of wicked rulers, because we live in the same generation, or not generation, we're a different generation, but we're in the same, particularly, same situation, predicament. We're ruled over by a bunch of fools. Fools, I mean, what other word are you going to use? Idiots? Moronic people that have gone insane? Look at what we're talking about. Our government spends all its time investigating other governing leaders. What, what were government leaders supposed to do in the past? I mean, if they weren't having trials and impeaching everybody they could point at, 
what were they? They were actually governing. They probably had a little bit more time on their hands. But in the midst of it, then and now, is God not so providential? He's sovereign, yes. He's, he's still in charge. Don't forget. Don't let us not forget that. God's in control. He's already told Paul in verse 11, don't worry, no matter what happens, you're going to Rome. So they've got this plan, okay, and they've gone up to the council. Look, bring him down at this particular time. And there's more than 40 of us. We're going to pounce on him, kill him, and we'll just get rid of this problem. Verse 16, but the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Now, we have never heard that Paul has any family. It just kind of comes up out of nowhere. We don't know about Paul's life, but clearly we know he has a sister here and a young nephew. Um, Paul says he lost everything when he speaks of his life in Philippians chapter three, verse eight, he says, I've lost everything. We assume that that means his family as well for the cause of Christ. Maybe his sister is on board. Maybe she's a believer. Maybe she's not. Why is the boy in Jerusalem? Maybe he was sent to Jerusalem to learn under a rabbi as Paul had been. We don't know. We don't know if the, if the nephew loves Paul, doesn't love Paul. Why is he there? He is. Just happens to be some, un, and we don't even get a name. Paul's nephew. God's sovereignty? God's providential, hey, I'm going to put somebody there, and they're going to overhear those, four, those over 40 people talking to the council, and he's going to discover the plot and expose it. Son of Paul's sister heard, their, heard about their ambush. <clears throat> and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. So he could enter the barracks. Paul wasn't under arrest. He's a Roman citizen. There are no charges against him. He's at the fortress of Antonia, which is where Jesus was held. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said to him, lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. The commander replied, who are you to tell me what to do? That's not there either. I added that. But I added it because here's Paul, a Jew, telling a Roman centurion, hey, go report it. And he does. There's a certain respect for Paul even among the Romans. Note here that the Romans are not necessarily the enemy. It's the Jews. So he said, lead this young man. He doesn't say, please, sir, long live the king. If you would, if you don't mind, I've got some information. If you would just lead this young lad, he might be able to help me out. No, lead this man to the commander. He has something to report to him, verse 18. So he took him and led him to the commander. That's uh, a centurion is over a hundred, hence century. The commander is the Greek word here for the tribune who's over a thousand. And we know his name, Claudius Lysias. He'll, he's going to tell us his name in just a minute. But we know him in hindsight. So he goes to the commander and he said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, stepping aside. I want you to note that took him by the hand. Does that sound like something a Roman tribune would take a young Jewish boy by the hand? Unless he was a real little boy. Now, I don't know that. I'm reading into the text. I admit that. But take that's that's you know, if he's a man. Come here, boy. But take him by the hand. The kid might be six years old, eight years old. Come here, young fella. Take him by the hand. So God's got a little boy in there, at least someone who's young, still don't know his name. Commander took him by the hand, verse 19, and stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow morning or tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. 
for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So plot has been exposed. So the commander said the young, to the young man, go instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. The commander has a responsibility. He could just say, Paul is of no use to me. He's a Jew and all the Jews are mean and ugly to me. The commander could have said, and I'd really just need this headache gone away. But Paul has the trump card. He's a Roman citizen. And the commander is being held to a high standard. He answers to the governor, the procurator, who answers to the emperor. And if someone of a Roman citizen or some Roman citizen dies under the commander's tenure or watch, he's in trouble. So he's got to be very careful with this. And so he is. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one of these things. You've notified me. Verse 23. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready. So if there's two centurions and there's 200 soldiers and that's centurions over one, the other centurions over another, 200 soldiers, get them ready by the third hour of the night. That's nine o'clock by the way. And proceed to Caesarea, which from Jerusalem is about 65 miles away. I read just this past week that uh, 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 armies on, on horseback usually travel or never traveled much faster than three miles per hour. It's going to take a few hours to get there. 200 soldiers, not two guys, not four people to guard Paul, 200 soldiers, nine o'clock. The guys that aren't going to eat, apparently are not going to eat through the night. And tomorrow morning when you bring Paul up, they're going to kill him. Proceed to Caesarea or Caesarea. Caesarea is where uh, the procurator lives. That's that's where um, the uh, the Roman governor is. By the way, this it's we we know one in the Bible or know a couple in the Bible, uh, Pontius Pilate. Right? Pontius Pilate was deposed in AD 36. The one who's reigning now, his name is Felix. We also meet a guy named later, whose name is Festus. These people not only appear in the Bible, they appear in extra biblical literature. We know that they were actually governors of this area. So the governor would stay in Caesarea and would come to town and stay in the fortress of Antonia. There, right at the temple, is Herod the Great's old palace right next to the temple. Uh, some of us just went through this place recently, and he would come and uh, stay there on the, uh, the feast days to make sure order was there. This is not a feast day, necessarily. Might have been Pentecost. Pentecost is over. At any rate, you're going to take him down to Caesarea where he'll be tried. And you're going to take 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. So 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That's javelin throwers. That's 470 people. To guard Paul. Now half of them are going to come back. They're going to go halfway and they're going to come back. So if you figure you take them at nine o'clock at night, you take this huge contingent of soldiers and they make their way to Caesarea and halfway in, they're going to go to this place called Antipatris. They're going to come back. So anyone who's trying to follow Paul, they couldn't follow him because they don't even know they've left at nine o'clock. They're going to go secretly. And as they go halfway, the soldiers are going to come back. So anyone going to get Paul are going to have to run into these soldiers. In other words, Paul's going to make it to Caesarea just fine. The Romans are are providing this. Verse 24, they were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Paul gets to ride on a horse. And he wrote a letter having this form. Now, this letter is a bit cheeky, or at least I read it cheeky, cheekily. Okay, here we know his name, Claudius Lysias. His name is actually Lysias. Claudius was the name that he took to become uh, a, uh, as we looked at earlier, remember when he was, he was uh, questioning Paul? Uh, 
Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. And Lysias said, well, uh, I paid a, a large sum for mine. How did you get it? And Paul said, well, I was born, a, born one. So back then I told you that, uh, you know, the, the, um, the emperor's name, Claudius. And in that day, it's known historically that people were able to buy, they were able to bribe their way and become Roman citizens. Lysias appears to have bought his citizenship and in honor of the, the emperor took on uh, the name Claudius. So you've got, you know what the cognomen is and the, and the, and the nomen. <laughs> uh, I get them reversed. Cognomen, I think, is the last name. The nomen, nomen is uh, uh, Greek for name. The cognomen be the last name. So his nomen is now Claudius. It used to be Lysias. His cognomen is Lysias now. Anyway, we know who he is. He expresses himself. He appears in extra biblical literature as well. Claudius Lysias, he writes this letter. Now, let me know if you think this is actually what happened. To the most excellent governor Felix, who historically was indeed the governor at this time, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him. <laughs> Not quite. But it makes him look good. In fact, he uses his, the first person pronoun, I believe it's 12 times. 12 times, I, 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 makes himself look pretty good, which we would all do probably. What's Paul going to do? No, that's not right. I came to them, the troops, and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. I learned that he was a Roman, so I went and rescued him. That's not what happened. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. Now, this, um, uh, this little letter that's written, um, when you read uh, some of the commentaries that are out there uh, that are not so favorable to, to this being God's word, they said, well, there's no way Luke could have known what this letter said. He wasn't, he wasn't there. He doesn't see, was he standing over Claudius's shoulder going, huh, let me write that down. I got a book to write. Um, perhaps Paul told him, perhaps the letter was written, was read publicly later on. Uh, perhaps God gave him insight into what it was. Perhaps it's just, and I believe it's just an overview of actually what Lysias actually said. Just the gist of it. But anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in there because you read certain things. There are people that so desperately don't want the Bible to be true and they write theological commentaries. So I want you, I say that at the very least to tell you just because you see a commentary on the book of the Bible, on a book of the Bible at a bookstore or someone advertising, that doesn't mean it's any good. You have every, please text me, write me. Lance, is this a good commentary? Nine times out of 10, I'm going to say, don't buy, don't buy that. Um, and I, I will guide you to conservative commentaries if you want to know what the Bible actually says because you'll find commentaries that are out there that look great. And What book is not sold more than others that doesn't have a huge, beautiful cover on it or thick and, and slick and 50% off and, and you read the back and this is uh, endorsed by these and these and these. Wow, that sounds smart. That book's going to make me smart. It's really just a bunch of nonsense a lot of the times. So anyway, I just tell you that there's all kinds of good that stuff out there. I believe that Luke, everything Luke says throughout this book has been scrutinized over the centuries. And it, there is no book that is more historically accurate. The names he uses, the places he uses, even when he's talking about the direction of the wind blowing, um, scholars have found this is the most accurate, amazingly historically accurate book in the Bible. And it leaves itself out there to so much scrutiny because it speaks of so many different locations and people. Yeah, Vince? 
the crux of, of the whole position, and, and I mean that kind of um, big picture. I talked about the main idea. <clears throat> Today versus then. It says they're questioning of their law. What that really says is they didn't like the status quo being disrupted. They didn't like what? They didn't like the status quo being status quo being disrupted. <laughs> they they were they had the they had the city and the law and they had the people under their thumb, as well as, as all rulers did. And when anybody is questioned, especially when it's being told to do something in contrary, you lose your power. So the point being made is that uh that the Jews were upset is that Paul had come in and rocked their world. The status quo kind of rocked the status quo. And hence, Lysias is able to say, I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. Yeah, good point. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. He's very fair. Because it uh, seems to be exactly what's going on. So it's an accurate overview of what is going on that Lysias writes, writing to Felix. So Felix would write, would read this and go, I found the guy. Okay. Here's a guy standing before him. Okay. A charge, which they were accusing of, uh, they were brought to their council. Their council didn't know what to do with them. I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. I could see Felix going, then what the heck did you do? Why are you here in the middle of the night? But that's not there. Verse 30. Lysias says, when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So Lysias has done everything he's supposed to do, and he did. He embellishes it a little bit, but he's done what he has to do to save his own behind, and, and he's following protocol. Verse 31, so the soul, now, in God's providence, Lysias could have said, there is no case here. There's no case whatsoever. You people have nothing to say. I remember you killed your Messiah a few years back. He hadn't done anything. I'm letting him go. What would he have done? What would have happened? He would have been killed. Paul would have been killed. So in God's providence, he keeps him under arrest. Sends him in the middle of the night, 65 miles. How many of you like to do that? I mean, even getting in the car. What? It's 9 o'clock and I got to drive 65 miles? Turn my air conditioner and my radio on and get a snack and drink some coffee. Doggone it, I don't want to do that. And imagine riding a horse or walking 65 miles in the middle of the night. Paul's got to be going, really, Lord, can't you just set me free? Is this the best way to go? To have you ever said that? Lord, do I really have to go through all this heartache to get to the next stage? Yes. Lord, I thought we were going to get married young and have, have babies and just live happily ever after. No. No, the first child you have is going to be adorable. And you are going to think, we must be wonderful parents. The next child you have is not. And the next child is going to be a special needs child. And then your husband is going to die at the age of 32 of a heart attack. And you're going to be finding yourself living with your parents, helping you raise three children, one of which is a special needs. And you're going to look back at your life and you go, this is not what I foresaw when I got married at age 22. Right? Do these things happen? Every day. There are no guarantees. Or you're retired. Kids have gone on. You've lived it. You've stockpiled some money. You've retired. Everything is good. You've got your nice house. You've got your health. And your daughter marries a schmo. And he, they have a baby and he leaves. And your daughter dies. Now you're raising a kid. And you got to go through all the teenage baseball and all the little cheerleading stuff. And you're old now, at least in the eyes of the world. 
Did you look back in your life and you go, Lord, is this, is this, I didn't sign up for this. Happens, may not have happened to you, but happens to people all the time. Lord, what are you doing? Paul could have been saying the same thing. Lord, I thought I was doing fine. I made my way through Europe and Asia. I was telling about Jesus. Is really, this is what I have to do? The answer, Paul, yes. Now shut up and move on. Verse 31, so the soldiers in accordance took their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. It's about halfway up the road to Caesarea. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. So half of them go back to Jerusalem. The other half continue on. It's half the garrison. 470 men is half the garrison that would have been with Lysias in Jerusalem. But half leave, the next quarter come back. Verse 33, when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from, the, from what province he was. This is Felix. He's asking what province, and we'll look more at Felix next week. Uh, what province are you from? And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, which is where Paul's once, where Tarsus is. Tarsus is in the region of Cilicia. By the way, it's, in, it's under this Assyrian legate. Uh, legate would be uh, the ambassador over this region in this particular region of which Felix presides. So he learns that Paul's from Cilicia and he said, I will give you a hearing because he has the power to give someone a hearing who's from Cilicia. I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Okay, so here you go. That's, that's Paul. Is there anything there that tells us what to do, how to do it? No. So let's look at some themes here. Number one, as I said earlier, God's providence, working through daily situations for his glory. Sounds pretty simple, but when the daily situations are inconvenience to us, we tend to wonder about God. And some people go so far as to shake their fist at him. Though we as Christians desire to follow Christ and to do the work of evangelists, there are powerful demonic forces at work to prevent us from doing so. You know this, right? I'll never forget that. If you, if you desire to live a godly life and you want to grow in your holiness, which we call sanctification, the Bible calls sanctification, you want to serve Christ, you want opportunities to share the gospel and to teach God's word, there are powerful forces working against you. Those who oppose the gospel will be the ones who strive to break the law in order to prevent us from preaching Christ as they were trying to break the law here to, to kill Paul. We don't need to break the law to succeed in doing what's right, but God's enemies must break the law to succeed. I mean, what does Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez tell her people to do now? Ignore the judge. Ignore the rules. Go do what you want to do. Isn't it interesting that the man of sin in the end times is called the man of lawlessness? Lawlessness. Spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2, 3, 4. The man of lawlessness. Don't miss that. A man who says, there are no laws. I make the laws. Do what I say. Do you see it happening? Do you see basic common sense falling by the wayside? Every day we do. But who's in charge? The answer to every question in church is always God. The answer to every question outside of church is always God. Some of you are going to, you're in your, your older age, and you get to exit before some of us younger people have to go through what's waiting. I have no doubt, folks. I really don't. I, I have no doubt. I don't mean to sound dramatic or like I'm some kind of a martyr, but I'm pretty sure if I stay in this, I'm 54 years old. I hope I get to preach till I'm 80 or more. 
but I'm pretty sure within the next 10 years, I will be in jail for hate speech. You laugh now. But hate speech is simply telling people what this says. It's going to be telling people you can't change genders. It's going to be telling people to a woman, you can't preach in a church. That's forbidden in the Bible. Killing a baby in your womb is murder. I didn't write it. I didn't say it. It's in the Bible. All we are is messengers of what God has said. We tell people out of love, you can't live together before you marry. Sex before marriage is adultery. You can't do that. That's a sin punishable by death in the Old Testament. You can't curse your parents punishable by death in the Old Testament. Did God get old along the way and say, eh, that doesn't bother me anymore. Just to say these things is going to be hate speech. I'm, I'm, I may have a ministry in jail. I might get beaten to death for it. I've got to live through what's left of this pathetic generation and the people that rule over us. But It'll be they that break the law to get me. And God willing, it won't be me. God didn't call me to break the law, to make things happen the way I want them to do. Try to manipulate things. Stay within the law, as Paul did. He didn't say, okay, I know what I wrote in Romans, but I'm going to make an exception for myself. Ever done that? I know what the Bible says, but don't even say that you know what I mean. There will also be times when state or federal laws will protect us, as they did with Paul on occasion. We see that happening a little bit today. Here's what Paul wrote. Mind you, what the slide I'm going to give you is what he wrote right before he went to Jerusalem. Because he wrote the Roman, he wrote the letter to the Romans right when he was leaving Corinth uh, for that last time. And he tells him, I'm, he tells, I'm, I'm coming to you, see you. That's why he writes to them. But I've got to go to Jerusalem first and I'll come see you on my way to Spain. Here's what he writes to them. Just before going to Jerusalem, Paul said this about the Jews. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of son, as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, Amen. This is what Paul said before he got to, to Jerusalem, before they start beating him up, accusing him, and then conspiring to kill him. I wonder if he's thinking, gave him a little too much credit. Would Paul now, sitting in this prison, being t- whisked away at night, would he now say that? Would he have written Romans the same way then? He probably would have. I wouldn't have. The plot to kill him, note the violence and hatred stemming from the Jews and their leaders against one of their own. As I said earlier, God appoints wicked leaders over wicked people. Note our own country today, the insanity of our leaders. Yes, God appoints wicked leaders over wicked people. We as Christians should ready ourselves to suffer greatly in the coming years, as I said earlier. Especially those of us who are younger who are going to live into this bleak future. So in God's providence, in verses 16 to 22, Never heard of Paul's family up to this point, yet his nephew appears out of nowhere to spoil the Jews' plot. How was a boy able to hear the plot against his uncle Paul? How did a young boy get access to a Roman tribune? Easy. Once again, the answer. The tribune must have respected Paul in letting him instruct him to listen to the boy, which I would say with that point is that you and I as Christians, if we can act above reproach, even under arrest... How many of you have ever read the story of uh, Richard Wormbrand? 
Um, in fact, there's a, you should, everyone should read. He's, he's the, he began the, the voice of the martyrs. And uh, um, he was a Romanian Lutheran pastor in Romania. I think he was Lutheran, Lutheran or Baptist. And uh, uh, the communists came in in 1948 and took over. And all Christians were eventually arrested. Everything confiscated. They had no guns. They couldn't fight them anyway. And while he's being beaten in prison, um, they, they would hang him up by, imagine yourself, remember when you were on the playground as a kid and you would wrap your, your legs around the, the, uh, the jungle gym, hang upside down? This is the way they would do worm brand. They would hang him up by his knees and they would beat his feet, beat the bottoms of his feet. And every time they would come into his cell and find him praying, they would do it again. And he would keep praying for them. And on one particular occasion, they're beating his feet and just the pain of having the bottoms of your feet just beat. Um, the guy said, how can you continue to pray? What could you possibly be praying for now? And Warren looked at him and he said, I was praying for you. Mm. To stay within the law and to continue to strive to bring glory to God over and against cursing in return. Or if I could get out of this position, I would annihilate you and turn your head around. Crack open your skull. No, I was praying for you. Huh. What a man. Richard Wormbrand was a great and godly man. Wormbrand. W-U-R-M-B-R-A-N-D. Richard Wormbrand. This is a man who was put in a, in a cell where he couldn't move around. And rats were everywhere. He would spend the evening beating off the hungry rats that were out to get him. This is part of the torture of a simple preacher from Romania. God had a plan for Paul to get to Rome, and thus Paul was going to Rome. Paul did, Paul did know this. You and I don't, and God had revealed it to him back in verse 11. And so, I don't know, how do you, how do, you do that today? How, how, do we, how do we encourage one another with that today? Is I don't know that I'm going to get to preach without going to jail until I'm 80 years old for the next 25 years. I don't know that I'm going to live past tomorrow. God has not appeared to me and told me I'm going to do that. Quite frankly, I'm ready to go now. I tell my family, there's really no more use for me here. I've raised my children. My wife will be fine with me. She's going to be richer when I die anyway. I got a good life insurance policy. What? Who needs me? But apparently God just, Lance, you make me laugh. Hang in there. So I don't know, and any more so than you know, what's going to happen. I do know that God's in charge. And I don't need to know the future or where I'm going to go or how many more times I get to share the gospel. I don't know. I don't need to know. I know that God's plan from passages like this, that God is working every event in history to make the events of time happen as they are happening. Let me say that again. God is working in every event in the here and now, every event to get to the ultimate event at his second coming. And every event that led up to the crucifixion of Christ and the life of Christ. Remember, Jesus keeps saying in the Gospels, it's not my time, not my time. He didn't die yet because it wasn't his time. Other things had to happen. Things have to happen. We see when we look at books in the Bible that speak of the end times. Is there going to be a revival? There might be a revival. There have been many revivals in the past. But eventually, the revivals fizzle out. It's going to get far worse right before the rapture of the church. Now, if you're from a post-millennial background, you say, what's that? Post-millennialism is very big in the Baptist church. I grew up Baptist. 
It's just not in the Bible that says things have to get better and we're going to create heaven and on earth, this great kingdom, and then Jesus is going to come back. Bible never says that. In fact, what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians is it won't happen until the great apostasy happens first. The great falling away. What is that? That's a church. Imagine a church of 500, 5,000 people who claim to believe, who are there hands in the air like they don't even care, singing at the top of their lungs, Bibles marked up. But when persecution happens, half of them are gone. Maybe more. The great apostasy, not just in one church, but in the church universal. That's what happens first. And when does that happen? All you got to do is zap the air today. Zap the air, the electromagnetic spectrum, and cut out our internet. Cut out our electricity. How many days do you think before people go hog wild insane? I give them 72 hours. (laughs) Hey, don't laugh. I'm not joking. I give them 72 hours, maybe 48 hours before people go insane crazy. What are we going to do? You can't check the news. You can't fill your car up. You can't turn your air conditioner on. Your refrigerator's out. There's nothing there. Once you're out of food, what are you going to do? Now, this is not a plea to go out and stockpile. You could do that if you want, but Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Who's in charge? Same answer you give and everyone. God had a plan for Paul to get to Rome. Paul's going to get to Rome. God has a plan for the events of today to lead into that final event. And God is in control of it. Don't miss it. That's what the providence of God is. Every day God is ordering events in order for history to reach its ultimate end. How can we not be reminded of Jesus' death here? Paul is being, I mean, the same things are doing to Paul they did to Jesus. A conspiracy against an innocent man. And even right down to the, the council itself, the Sanhedrin coming together. Let's get him. The Romans joining in. Jesus spent the night at the fortress of Antonia. Paul spent the night at the fortress of Antonia. One thing after another. Both Jesus and Paul were Jews, preachers of the gospel to the Jews, guilty of no crime. Both were plotted against, both stood before a wicked Sanhedrin, and prisoners at Fort Antonia. Surely, Paul shared in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, as he said in Philippians 3.10. Why did the Jews react against one of their own people who had committed no crime? Well, no, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul himself says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the God of this world. That's a lowercase g. Who is the God of this world? Satan himself. John 12, 31. Remember that? Okay, that was, it wasn't God on that one, was it? That wasn't the answer. Satan, you wouldn't want to say God on that one. John 12, 31, Jesus himself says, the ruler of this world, speaking of Satan himself. And what does the God of this world do? Blinds the minds, blinds the eyes, the minds of unbelievers, as he had done with Paul. Before he opened his eyes. And when he opened his eyes, he blinded him again. So he could take an Ananias, that other Ananias, later had the scales fall off his eyes. This is what's happening. We too live in a world blinded by the God of this world. If you don't see it on the daily news, I saw a video of a lady today. She had gone to, to Target and was walking through the Target and bought like $1,000 worth of stuff and wanted. Um, reparations from the past and was demanding that all of this be free and believed that it was so and it just turned into a to a big mess you think wait a minute wait a minute if we we've all messed up in the past we've all sinned and our ancestors have sinned 
But going through and demanding a way, is that God's plan? Stay within the law. Let God do what God does. Shine the light of Christ, not the light of AOC. The darkness of her. So some quick observations. No deed goes unpunished, right? We like to say that. No good deed goes unpunished. No, that's wrong. Uh, That's just when we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Um, Paul does good deeds, bringing the gospel, gets punished. Paul, God must be against him. No, God's with him. Don't fall into that category. When we feel abandoned by family, friends, colleagues, or even God, we're not. Certainly not by God. Though we may doubt God's presence, he never leaves us. He always encourages us in the midst of our service to him, as he did in 2311 with Paul. Paul's defense will be a public proclamation of the gospel, not a personal self-defense of Paul when we get to it. Here's all I did. Here's all I said. No, a public, public proclamation of the gospel is what he's going to give. We'll see that next week. Though Paul's friends likely prayed for his, released, for his release, it happens in God's timing, not theirs. God doesn't, blind, doesn't bind us in various ways just so we can pray to be set free. We pray the Lord's will be done. In other words, you didn't get sick last year with cancer so that you could pray the next day and it all go away. Now, Jimmy Jordan, my buddy over here, got, uh, um, what'd you get? Leukemia. Leukemia. Leukemia one time. Man, we started praying for him. And, and he got healed, but through a hellish couple of years. He got a bone marrow transplant, and that just fixed everything, didn't it? Man came to church with eyes completely blood red and a huge gas mask on, trying to live, trying to breathe, hoping, wanted to be in church worshiping, didn't, the germs outside, seeing if the bone marrow took. He gained weight he didn't want to have. People wondered, are you ever going to be able to go back to work? He goes, hey man, I had cancer, I almost died. Unfairly uh, rebuked in some cases. Didn't go away. It did go away, but not like that. Did we not have faith? I think Jimmy's faith and Amanda's faith has improved. I use him as an example a lot because it made made a huge impression on me. Not just what happened to him, but his faith in the midst of it. Uh, The brief mention of Paul's nephew reveals that Acts is not the story of Paul's life. I like this quote from D.E. Garland. He says this, His family relations are not central to the story. Acts is about how God directs the movements of the gospel in these early days. Paul said that when he became a Christian, he counted all things loss. Did he have to count his biological family as one of those things he considered loss? What is clear from the list of devoted fellow workers in Romans 16 and from the various disciples in Acts who gathered to greet and pray with Paul on his way to Jerusalem and to Rome is that Christians have a greater family and a support network that extends worldwide as members of God's family. In a nutshell, your greater family is not those of your blood relatives. It's the family of Christ, isn't it? In church. And most of you without, don't even put up your hands. But how many have asked you to put up your hands would say, you know what, I'd rather share a Thanksgiving meal with church than to go home and have it with my family. Nine out of ten people usually say church. So warning for us today, the fanaticism represented in the terrorist Jews who vowed not to eat until Paul was murdered will eventually result in the total destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Ten years later, happened within a decade. Those people continue to reject the gospel. The truth is God did not make Christianity to be a violent movement against its detractors. Christians are prophesied to undergo and endure persecution, even death by the sword with faithful, patient, faithful endurance. That's what Revelation 13, 14 says. Those who persevere to the end. Our only weapon in this war is, as Ephesians 6 says, 
the sword of truth, which is the word of God. Stand before governors and people that hate us and want to put us in jail. Give them the truth. Not a defense per se. I was just preaching. I just said what God said. Tell them what God said. Don't let anybody out of your presence without them hearing the gospel or seeing the gospel in you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, as we look at and, and think about your providence, your sovereign providence over, over every, every event of life, I pray that it would encourage us, that it would prepare us for a future that, that, that looks so bleak. And because we can, we pray for revival. Maybe a revival will come in uh, in our generation. The Bible itself will, 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 will excite people that the Spirit of God will overtake this messed up world. And yet we know from your word that it's coming, uh, that the end is at some point going to come upon us. May we be ready uh, for one or the other. May we be rejoicing. May we be found rejoicing, if that is your will, rejoicing uh, when, uh, when we might otherwise want to complain. Uh, may we be mature enough to do so. Grow us through your word. Speak to us in your word. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.